you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2 and verse 42 to 47 today with an emphasis on verse 42. In the last couple of weeks of the year as we come toward Christmas and then uh, toward New Year's weekend, uh, I'm going to emphasize a couple of other messages and emphases that, that we have going into the new year and then right after the new year. And we'll take a hiatus from the book of Acts for several weeks, and then we'll come back to it in early January. Uh, but we've been blessed so far by thinking about the life of the early church as it was born, just as Jesus had promised, the Holy Spirit had come, uh, miraculous signs surrounded that. And we're learning in Acts how the Holy Spirit empowers believers and churches to live for the glory of God, to share the good news about Jesus, and to advance the kingdom of God. What we find when we come to Acts is a record of the birth of the early church as well as the life of the early Christian church. The spread of the gospel that took place out of that, and then the opposition against it because people weren't happy with how lives were being changed. The church grew and spread as they focused on the gospel and were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what we are considering is Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 to 47 with an emphasis on devoted to fellowship. Now we've already considered what it means to be devoted to teaching. And devoted to teaching begins with faith. It continues with study as we apply ourselves. And then it results in obedience as we live our lives for Christ. But now devoted to fellowship. And I pick up reading here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And here's what the Bible says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word for fellowship means to share or to hold something in common. It's used 20 times in the New Testament, and this is the first occurrence of it. The picture is of a church that was newly formed and forming, and yet they had all things in common. They were in partnership together for the mutual benefit of one another, and they were growing that partnership and that shared fellowship together out of a desire to honor and to please God for what he had done in their lives. And they devoted themselves to the Christian experience. I think what's in view is a group of people who were large in number, who were intentional about this aspect of fellowship, the, about this aspect of family. And there's some things that we can learn about that. There are some definitions, actually, or some things that they were actually living out a little bit further into this passage. But for our focus, I want to to emphasize characteristics of fellowship and what it means to be devoted to it. 
So we begin with fellowship being grounded in our status as spiritual family. Fellowship is grounded in our status as spiritual family. This kind of fellowship was new because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that took place at Pentecost. The root idea, as we have noted, is a commonness or a commonality. All believers are a part of the family of God. We're born with blood relatives, but the relatives that we have in the family of God goes beyond family ties, beyond blood ties. It's spiritual and it's eternal. When a person accepts Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, they become a part of the family of God so that no matter what our background is or our heritage or where we've come from, God's family is one and he is building his family from every tribe, tongue, and nation. John chapter 1 and verse 12 and 13 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of human will, but born of God. We are born into the family of God through faith in Jesus. I think about Paul's instruction to the church at Ephesus when he was telling them to live a life that was worthy of the calling that they had in Christ. When he did that in Ephesians chapter 4, without conjunction in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5 and then 6, he lists seven elements of unity that are centered on the Trinity and emphasized by the word one. This is the spiritual emphasis that should be present in the church because we are one spiritual family. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. One commentator classified it this way. He said, First, the oneness of the church itself is one body, one spirit, and one hope. Next, the source and instrument of that unity is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and lastly, the unity of the divine author. One body is the universal church that is comprised of local fellowships. So the one body, the, the family of God overall, worldwide, is comprised of people who have repented of their sins and trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for their salvation. So they became a part of the family of God, and then they chose to become part of a local family of God, a local body of believers. That's the one body, one spiritual family. There is one Spirit who is the Holy Spirit. He indwells us as the church. That's God's Spirit, His gift to the church, which forms us into one spiritual body. All believers have a common hope. We have confidence from the time that we are called to Christ. And this could be translated as just as there is one thing that we may hope for. So we're saying together, we have a common hope. And that hope is because we are in Christ and there is one Spirit. There is one Lord who refers to Christ, who's the head of the church. And you need to understand, there is only one Lord there is no committee, there's no ministry team, there's no board, there's no group of people, there's no leadership structure whereby uh, they're the head of the church, if you will. The head of the church is Jesus. So we look to him. We're informed by him and the truth of the word. 
We're guided by making him known. We're given the truth by the Holy Spirit. And we honor the one Lord because he's the head over all. We are his servants. One faith is the faith exercised by all Christians. And the word for faith actually means creed in Ephesians chapter 4 because it represents what we believe. And then one baptism is mainly a reference to a spirit baptism. There is a spirit baptism at salvation, and then there's a water baptism as an outward expression of a changed life. There is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. This is the sovereign God who is over all of eternity. And God's purpose is summed up in Christ. Think about the progression of the message that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. He lays the foundation in chapter 1 of all the eternal spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus. And then he tells us in chapter 2 how we can lay hold of those promises because we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. Otherwise, we would be boasting about something that we had done. Then he tells us that we're to put off the old man and we're to put on the new man. Finally, as we come to Ephesians chapter 4, he's speaking in terms of our united condition, our spiritual fellowship because of what we share in common in Jesus. There's a great old story about a preacher of yesteryear by the name of John Fawcett. Uh, John Fawcett was orphaned at the age of 12, and he learned to read with John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. He was converted under the preaching of the famous evangelist George Whitfield, and he told George Whitfield that he felt like he was being called to serve God and to preach. So they invited Fawcett over to preach at a church called Wayne Gate in England. It was a small, uh, struggling uh, congregation of people, but he quickly acclimated. He was committed to them, loved the work there, and he was eventually uh, called as the pastor as well as uh, ordained to the ministry in the late 1700s. But then he got an invitation to what seemed like a better opportunity. He was there at Wayne Gate. He had been faithful. And he gets the call to come and preach at a church called Carter Lane Baptist Church in London uh, where John Gill was the pastor. Now, John Gill died in 1771, and Fawcett was soon offered the position and he begins to consider making the move. Now, it would have seemed practical that he would do that. Uh, finances had been difficult at Wayne Gate. The ministry had been difficult. It looked like London was the place to be, and it would be where God was calling him to go. And, of course, he would have gone had it been the legitimate call of God. The day of their departure arrived. There was no U-Haul truck. Uh, there was no United Van Line to come pick up all their belongings. There was only a two-wheeled cart. They rolled that two-wheeled cart up in the front of their little cottage there in the village. They began to load all their belongings into it. And pretty soon, the parishioners of the church began to show up. They were despondent, and they were in tears because Pastor Fawcett was going to be leaving. His wife was there with him at the cart. And she looked at him, and she said, I can't stand it. I don't know how to go. And Fawcett replied, Lord, help me, Mary. I can't stand it either. He said, we're going to unload the wagon. They told the crowd, we've changed our minds and we're going to stay. And they erupted with joy at the news. Now here's the point of this little story. His attachment to and commitment to the church was so deep that he was willing to cast himself on the providence of God 
to say no to an opportunity that looked like it would have been a better opportunity to live and to die with that one congregation. Many ministers in that day would write hymns on the theme of the day of a certain message that they had preached or a certain theme of what was going on in their lives. And Fawcett would go on to pastor that church for 54 years in total, if you can imagine that. But his near departure inspired the beloved hymn that we all know, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. It was first printed in 1782. It had six original stanzas. It's usually shortened to four. The fifth stanza builds on the anticipation of gathering again, while the sixth stanza focuses heavenward. Now, Fawcett was a man who knew hardship. He knew what it was like to face difficulties in this life as he served the Lord. He lost his son Stephen to smallpox in 1774, his mother in 1782, his daughter in 1785, as well as four of his closest friends. But he would write these words, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour out our ardent prayers. Our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows with sympathizing tear. When we are called to part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. This glorious hope revives our courage by the way, while each in expectation lives and waits to see the day. From sorrow, toil, and pain, and sin, we all shall be free, and perfect love and friendship will reign throughout eternity. The fact that we are a part of God's family in the household of faith is a great blessing, and we get out of that blessing what we put in it. If we are committed to other people and to the fellowship and we're not isolated, concerned primarily about ourselves or our own agenda or anything else, but we see ourselves as part of a spiritual family that's not holding back, we are committing to one another in the spirit of what God has called us to, then God will use that and he will bless us as a result of it. But our fellowship is grounded in our status as spiritual family. The second characteristic is that fellowship is motivated by our love for others. Fellowship is motivated by our love for others. In the account in Acts chapter 2, it's evidence that they were together. They actually liked each other. They loved each other even though they had differences and they had come from different uh, situations and circumstances. They were together and they loved one another. And I think there are levels of, of fellowship. And here's what I mean by that. There's the unity of the Spirit, which is a fact for everybody who is in Christ. So if the Spirit of God indwells us, we have a common unity, we have a common fellowship. That's automatic. But then there's the unity of faith, which we are to attain as we grow towards spiritual maturity. So there's our position in Christ with the Spirit indwelling us, but then there's our practice. How do we actually live this out? How do, we, how do we apply this in a real way within the fellowship of believers and with other Christian people that we know? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2 says this, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, 
if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. The only thing that is enough to motivate us to crucify self and to serve God faithfully, the only thing that's enough to motivate us to do that is the love of Christ. That's the only thing. We are united in spirit, in soul, with the same purpose, but we are united because of the consolation of love that we have in Him. That His love constrains us and compels us. There have been a number of studies that have shown that in our culture, ultimate goals are consistently defined in terms of self-fulfillment through self-seeking. That's the pattern of pretty much how the world around us is ordered and structured, that it's for number one. I'm going to look out for number one. It's structured that way for me to worry most about myself. But the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself is life-changing. It is transformational because it calls for interaction with others and it calls for a selflessness. I think about Jesus when he was asked a question by a Pharisee, who was considered to be an expert in the law, what the greatest commandment is. You remember how he replied. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. I think it is clear enough to understand what it means to love the Lord your God. But what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. Well, in Luke's account of this, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. And in the Near East, there was and still is, unfortunately, as we know, a lot of division among people for a lot of different reasons. Animosity existed then between the Jews and the Samaritans because of their historical and religious and uh, their uh, differences and the heritage that they had. Jews knew the commands of the Old Testament, but their uh, interpretation of loving your neighbor as yourself was loving people like you. Is that not a trap that we sometimes fall into? It's easy to love people like us. It's easy to love people that basically look like us, think like us, have common experiences, uh, common situations in life common socioeconomic standing, all the different things that go along with that. It's pretty easy to do that. But when Jesus spoke about our neighbor, he was taking the opportunity to challenge the way of thinking that would think that our neighbor is only the people like us. And the parable of the Good Samaritan defines what it means to love your neighbor. In the story, a man's beaten by robbers and he's left for dead on the side of the road. While he's lying there, helpless, a priest sees him, he deliberately walks by on the other side of the road. Later, a Levite does the same thing. Then a Samaritan sees the victim and he responds. He personifies neighborliness. He shows mercy to take care of the man's needs. And not only does he show mercy to take care of the man's needs, he further obligates himself to take care of the man's needs after he's gone. This is how clear the commandment to love our neighbor as ourself is, even if it's not easy. John Piper said of this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, he said, this means I love the other person as though they were me. 
They said more, but I want us to just absorb that for a second. It means to love the other person as though they were me. Well, you know who's the most important person in my life? Me. That's how we think, is it not? I mean, let's be honest. Who are we thinking about most often? Now, we can be uh, as bold as we want to be and talk about how we're always thinking about others and serving others, and we may be. But we're thinking about self. When I wake up in the morning, who am I thinking about taking care of? I'm thinking about taking care of myself. And then I think about helping and taking care of others. And you do the same thing. It's just part of how we're geared for survival and thriving and everything goes along with that. So if that's true, if our love for self is great and we use it well, then how important is it as we think about loving others that we apply that same type of emphasis? However you want others to treat you, you treat them. And the golden rule depends on our relationship with God who loves us, who answers our prayers, and who gives us good things by His grace. Romans 13 and verse 8 says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Love for neighbor is a fulfillment of the law. Paul spoke of himself as being under obligation. He said he was under obligation as a debtor to both the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. What was his debt? His debt was to preach the gospel to all people. And the reason that he had a debt is because he had received God's gracious love while he was still a sinner. So let me ask you this question. If we're going to love other people as though they are ourselves, if we're going to love our neighbor as ourself in that way, then we've got to be careful how we look at people and make value judgments and categorize them in order not to marginalize them before we ever even have the opportunity to extend the love that's been extended to us. Let me give you an example of this. Sometimes we can look at other people and we, we think, well, you know, we're a little bit further down the road, we're a little bit more spiritually mature, and, spiritually mature, and, and we start looking at them and we think, well, how could they be like that? Why would they say that? Why would they do that? And you know why we say things like that and, and think that way? Because we forgot what it was like to be lost or we forgot what it was like to be spiritually immature and not to have grown to the point that we are now. And that causes us to categorize people and think, oh, we're just a notch better spiritually. We're just a little further down the road. And therefore, they ought to be acting different than they are. That's not a spiritually humble way of looking at it. Because when we receive the gracious gift of eternal life, we owe the debt of love to all people. Now, here's the good news of this. We don't pay this out of our own love. God gives us a full supply of his love. He is love. And we get to be the overflow of that to others. I think love sees. You've got to be observant enough to see the needs of others to notice so that you can show love in the fellowship of believers I think love cares can't just see the need you gotta have a little bit of compassion to respond to it rather than just feeling sorry for the person love acts by responding to hurts and then love sacrifices love as the man in the parable that Jesus told. 
is willing to obligate itself even if it costs something. In fact, that's how we can tell if it's a sacrifice or not. Because if it doesn't cost us anything, it's probably not much for sacrifice. Admittedly, it's not easy to love or be loved sometimes. There are days more than I would probably like to admit that I am not very easily loved. And it's the same with you. But let me ask this question. Does the love of God ever waver in your life on those days? Does he love you less on the day that you're difficult than he does on the day that you're on track? And the obvious answer is no. His love for you is consistent. It is unchanging because he is an unchanging God. And he applies this love to us. And we are to do the same thing. And this is what compels us. You see, this is why a try-harder, do-better version of religion always ends up at a dead end because it's about our strength and it's about us and the focus is on us. And it ends up in frustration. If we're not compelled by the right thing, if we're only compelled because we think that we're obligated to do something, we'll do it for a while, but it'll run out because we can't sustain it. There's a story about Hudson Taylor, the great missionary who served in, in China. And... Um, he was interviewing some young people for the work of Christ. And he asked them, why do you want to go as a foreign missionary? One said, well, because Christ has commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's a good reason. Another said, because millions are dying without ever having heard of Jesus. Also a good reason. And others gave similar answers. But it wasn't what Taylor was looking for. He said this, he said, all of your motives are good, but I fear they will fail you in times of severe testing and tribulation, especially if you are confronted with the possibility of having to face death for your testimony. The only motive that will enable you to remain true is stated in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14. Christ's love constraining you or compelling you will keep you faithful in every situation. Folks, this is why worship is central to service. This is why when we think about engaging in fellowship and really building it, we realize that it, it's going to take work, effort, engagement, investment in the lives of other people. We've got to remember why we are compelled to do what we do. Love is the foremost motivation for our work for God, and it was the foremost motivation for Christ rescuing us and reconciling us in his righteousness. God is love, and therefore we are to love one another. He's the source of genuine love, and fellowship is motivated by our love for others. There's the third and final characteristic of fellowship, and that is fellowship is exercised in our daily lives. I also think now about Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 and 25. And here's what it says. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. There's a major emphasis on the one another's in the Bible. There are over a hundred references to one another's in the Bible, and 59 of those are in the New Testament. Be devoted to one another. 
honor one another, live in harmony with one another, accept one another, serve one another, comfort one another, edify one another, confess our sins to one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, spur one another on toward love and good deeds, offer hospitality to one another and love one another. Over half of the references are a direct command. You know why that's important? Because it's not presented to us as being optional. We don't get to choose and say, oh, I think I'll, I think I'll obey that one, but I'm not going to honor that one. No, it, it is a, a commitment that is to be exercised as we live. And that was the fellowship of that early church. When they came together, they were doing it in their daily lives. They're breaking bread together. They're moving from house to house. They're praying. They're focusing on the apostles' doctrine. They're building the fellowship. And this is the picture of Christian fellowship. Now, we gather primarily to worship God, but then we also gather uh, to encourage one another and to provoke love and good works, to be obedient to the call of Christ and to work together as we await the return of Jesus. And as I was thinking about these one another's, and there being so many of them, there's no way we can look at even a handful of them with any depth. But I was thinking about what are the themes that arise from all of these collective commandments like if we look at it the whole body of work of of the one another's what are themes that rise up that we can apply as sort of as templates well i think certainly one theme is the importance of serving one another uh, and as we serve one another we look to the life and the ministry of jesus which was embodied by service to others did not jesus say i didn't come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus, when he gathered with his disciples to wash their feet, as recorded in John chapter 13, he submitted himself to do something that normally a house servant would have done, and it foreshadowed his greatest act of service in his death and his resurrection when he washed the feet of his disciples. And there's a parallel here I want to draw out because I think this is good. The word that is used for Jesus laying aside his garments as he's preparing to wash the feet of his disciples in John chapter 13 is the same word that is used of Jesus laying down his life for others. Now, why does that matter? Because one was a preview of the other. One was a preparation of the completion of what he was going to do. And it's a reminder to us of the pattern that we are to follow. John 13 and verse 14 says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you as an example that you should do as I have done. Serving one another is one of those themes. Encouraging one another is another one of those themes. As we read in Hebrews chapter 10, discouragement might cause us to avoid fellowship when we need it the most you ever known people that you you know just encouragement would do them good if they if they would get in church they'd find other believers they get around other people that are struggling in the faith in the same way that they are and on that journey towards spiritual maturity and you know that's what they need if they just come and just just get plugged in get connected with with other believers but they won't do it they stay out they isolate themselves. And what happens? Does their life get better? Do their emotions get better? Does their anxiety get better in those circumstances? Generally not. Because that's not how God made us. 
God made us to, to encourage each other. And part of that encouraging one another is being together. And the Bible commands a specifically Christian form of encouragement where we're asking God to give us a heart that helps us die to our self-centeredness and helps us grow as we build other people up on purpose. Barnabas is called the son of encouragement in Acts chapter 4. He was the kind of Christian you certainly want around uh, while you're serving the Lord. Uh, Barnabas was a Levite from Cyprus. And some of the Christians who were scattered because of persecution had gone north to this place called Antioch. And they began to, to preach the gospel to the Jews that were there living in that city. And the leaders back at the church at Jerusalem, they heard what was going on. They were concerned about it because they weren't sure yet if it was appropriate for them to be preaching the gospel to the, to the Jews as they were and to be carrying out the mission as they were. And they sent Barnabas to check the circumstance out. Remember what happened when Barnabas arrived? What he saw blessed him. And the scripture says that he encouraged them to stay true to the Lord and to keep on pressing on in their faith. Barnabas, with a purpose of heart, continued to point these people to the Lord. And there's something else about the wording that's very important about this particular story. The verb encouraged that is used of Barnabas speaking of his interaction with the church is in the imperfect tense that means that he repeatedly encouraged them to persevere in their loyalty to the Lord so it was not a one and done he didn't just say a word of encouragement that was it no he was stirring up encouragement toward them so that they could continue on in their faith and I think a culture of encouragement is so important in the church in fact, I don't think that we can reach full Christian unity until we attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And we strive for it. We, we long for it. We work toward it diligently. But we've got to work at building a culture of encouragement. And I'm not talking about religious platitudes. And I'm not talking about patronizing people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about from a, a genuine heart. When we see people pressing on in their faith in the Lord. And they're encouraging us by their testimony we can encourage them by their faithfulness. And there's so many things like that. And, and, it, and sometimes we think, well, encouragement's got to be something dramatic. You know, it's got to be some big circumstance where I... No, it might just be a word, a simple word. Just come alongside somebody and say, you know, I saw what you did there, and that, that was a blessing. Thank you for your faithfulness. Or it could be something when people were walking through something dark, and we say to them, Jesus has promised he'll never leave you nor forsake you. You keep pressing on. That's encouragement. And that may be what some of you need to hear today. It feels like maybe you're going through the motions or it feels like that your spiritual life is not as full and, and dynamic as you think it should be. Well, I want to tell you, just keep pressing on. You go to the next step. You read the next verse. You pray the next prayer. You come to the next worship service. You take up the next act of service, and you keep pressing on. And somewhere in the middle of that, the Lord God himself, through his spirit, will encourage you. And he will give you what you need, whether you felt like you were going to get it or not. He'll be there with you to bless you for his glory and for your good. So there's encouragement, and then the last theme that I think is within this theme of uh, exercising in our daily lives is to agree with one another. Now the verse that I appeal to here is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. 
he introduces the letter to the church at Corinth. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. We have a singular collective purpose, even though we might have some different ideas about things. We treat each other well. We show grace. Unity is a state of oneness. It's harmony. It's united in Christ. That's what Jesus prayed for when he prayed for his disciples. He prayed that they would be one and that we would be one just as he and his Father are one. And we are members of this one body in Christ. Admittedly, this is not always easy. And it's not always easy because we are sinful people living in a sin-fallen world. The Corinthians were reproved for their quarreling in their divisions. The Galatians were warned about the dangers of rivalries and dissensions and divisions. The Colossians were told to forgive one another as they had been forgiven. The Ephesians were exhorted to put away bitterness and wrath and anger. And those words apply to us as well. Unity is not uniformity. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to see everything exactly the same way. But it does mean that we're going to agree on the essentials. And there are some things that are non-negotiable that are defined by truth that we will not compromise on. You see, here's one of the errors that's been made, I'd say especially in the last century, in the church in the West. Somewhere along the way, they decided, in Protestant liberalism specifically, that love was going to be the guiding theme, but that love was not defined as a biblical love. We are told to speak the truth in love. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. So love is not just turning a blind eye to anything and everything, and everybody just gets to pick what they believe or what they think about the Bible and about God and about Jesus and about life and everything else. That's not how it works. There is a body of truth. There is a faith that has once and for all been delivered to the saints. And we are to be strong in that. And we don't give in to a a relativism where everybody's views are accepted even if they're wrong hey if it's wrong it's wrong if you got it wrong about jesus somebody needs to tell you you got it wrong about jesus if you got it wrong about the word of god somebody needs to tell you you got it wrong about the word of god somebody needs to speak the truth and love to you so that's not what it means but it means to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of christ and do so focusing on the essentials and fellowship is exercised in our daily lives so here's how important this is. When you get to build relationships in the local church, those relationships also carry over to other parts of your life. Where you miss out the most is if you self-isolate. And what I mean by that is you come in, you're here for worship, and you're gone like a flash when it's over with. You don't want anything else to do with anybody else. You don't really want to talk to anybody. You don't want to deal with anybody. You're here, and then you're gone. You're not contributing to the fellowship if that's your mentality. And I say that to you not to criticize you, but to challenge you and then hopefully to encourage you that the blessing of Christian fellowship is only experienced when we actually engage in fellowship, where we know people and we're known. The good, the bad, and the ugly, everything in between, we know people and we're known. And that's where unity is built because of the commonality that we have in Christ and in closing, fellowship is a powerful witness to the world. It's either a good one or a bad one. Do you know there's a lot of people that have heard of the fellowship of certain churches? 
They don't want anything to do with it. You know why they don't want to do anything, anything to do with it? Because it's marked out by division and strife and conflict and people don't even like each other. I mean, hey, if you don't even like the body of Christ and you profess to be a Christian, you probably should go somewhere else or get your heart right. If you don't like the pastor who's trying to, to be a blessing to you and present the word to you on a weekly basis, you probably ought to go somewhere else. You ought to go some, find something you do like or somebody that you think is approval, approvable for you. You see, our hearts yielded to God makes it clear that it's not about us. And Jesus said, "You will by this will all men know that you are my disciples, by the love you show one toward another. And if that love's not being demonstrated, how are they going to know that it, it matters for our witness and our testimony? So let me share with you just quickly some barriers to fellowship and some blessings to fellowship. Here they are. Barriers to fellowship, first of all, are selfish individualism, where I think it's just about me, or you think it's just about you. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about us. But more importantly, it's about Christ. And if it's about Christ, that changes everything. It changes our focus and our heart for the Lord. But selfish individualism gets in the way sometimes. You know what else gets in the way? Self-righteous spiritual pride. Do you know there's people who think they're just a notch more spiritual? Just a little bit more knowledgeable. Just a little bit better than everybody else. So they kind of look down their spiritual noses at people. They don't have time to deal with people that are more complicated. They don't have time to deal with people who are more messy with their lives. They don't have time to deal with people that maybe don't want to hear their spiritual wisdom at the moment. And that can trap us up. Because we then put ourselves in a different category than other people. And then I think unhealthy and unbiblical preferences can do this as well. And I'm not talking about theological issues here. That this is, this is not the hill I'm talking about. I'm talking about when I make something that is my personal preference a point of biblical truth, and it's not, clearly, that can drive wedges. Because now it's about what I want. You know, the sad thing is that most churches probably have more conflict about this one than anything else. They're, they're not having grand theological discussions, unfortunately, a lot of times. They're, they're, they're not dying on, on, on the hill of, of, of certain theological truths. It's more about personal preferences. I don't like it. You like it. You like it. I don't like it. Whatever. And all of a sudden, we've got all these problems. I hear the stories all the time. And, and I, I, when I hear them, I, I'm, I can't even believe this. I think business and life is also a barrier to fellowship. We all get busy, and then socioeconomic and cultural differences can drive wedges. But what about the blessings? Well, the blessings include the fact that it's spiritual in nature, so it can't be taken from us. The Spirit of God is in us if we're in Christ. So we've got the common blessing of fellowship. Uh, it builds up unity, fellowship does. Not unanimity, but unity. It grows friendships. Friendships are important in the church. In fact, you, you ought to be working to, to, to grow and to build those friendships. Are friendships always easy? No. You know why friendships aren't easy? Because we get to know each other at a different level. It's not surface. There's a lot of surface relationships. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing fine. Meanwhile, your world's in a wreck. You don't want to tell anybody about it. But if it's a friend and they say, hey, how you doing? You know, I'm not doing very well. Let me tell you about what I got going on. And they'll listen to you. And they'll help you. They'll encourage you. Friendships are important, even if they're not easy. 
And then the blessing of fellowship is that it builds God's kingdom as we grow in Christ together. We share the same Lord Jesus. We share the same love for God. We share the same desire to worship. We share the same victories and struggles. We share the same focus on Christian living. And we share the joy of communicating the good news of Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, there have been several days in my life, in the years that I've served in pastoral ministry, where I felt a whole lot like that John Fawcett story. And because of my love for you, my love for the church, but most importantly, my love for Christ and the compelling call that he's placed on my life, I'm standing right here today and take no credit for it. I give the Lord the credit for his goodness. And it's the same way for those of you that have been the faithful, faithful servants of this church for decades. Decades. You've been hurt. Things hadn't always gone your way. Life's been difficult. There were weeks that you didn't feel like serving or didn't know where you were going to stir up the the strength to do it and what you do you just did it anyway why because you love jesus christ and you love his church and you're committed that's how churches are built churches are built and the kingdom of god is built through people who are devoted to the fellowship and god will use that and that's what i want to encourage for all of us father we thank you for this time you've given us today we're blessed by your word we're blessed by this fellowship we are imperfect people serving a perfect Savior. And I pray that we would be found faithful. Because you are faithful. God, you are always faithful. But would you find us faithful and help us as we serve you together? Uh, Father, I pray that you bless uh, any spiritual decisions that need to be made today. Draw us closer together as the people of God. And uh, grow us in our desire to be humble servants of Jesus. To love others as we've been loved and to really invest in building and growing the fellowship of God.